FM in the upper right hand of the home page you will you will see that um, donate button and um, go from there and we thank you so much for listening though and um, keep it right here at KBOO up next it's poetry every Monday evening we have a poetry show tonight it's poetry and everything and for the hour it's going to be featuring the work of Sue Bartlett so keep it right here thanks for listening night This is KBOO Portland. Time is 10 o'clock. And now it's uh, Poetry and Everything. Uh, this is actually a show in honor of Sue Bartlett. Hello. Good evening. Welcome to KBOO's Poetry and Everything. I'm Judith Arcana, your host, and I'm talking to you through KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon, USA. This month's show will actually, like last month's show, not follow the usual format that we've developed in the past few years. If you want to be reminded of that format, you can check online to listen to any or all of the shows we've done thus far before they started to change. So here's what we're doing tonight for September, the September show in 2019. This show is dedicated to the late Sue Bartlett, whose life which ended just a few weeks ago at the corner of Northeast 40th Avenue and Tillamook in Portland. Her life was lived in much the way KBOO struggles to operate as a community-minded enterprise. The show will first air nearly 24 hours after the moment of the autumnal equinox, which, here in the northwest corner of Oregon, was at 12.50 a.m. today, September 23rd, 2019 tipping us, as it does every year, toward the coming season of darkness. Here's how this show developed. The poet invited for tonight isn't here. I wasn't sure that was going to be the case until it got pretty late in programming terms. At the same time, death, which is always around but we don't always pay attention, pushed into my consciousness from several directions. And of course I've been thinking about Sue. One result of that classic pushiness is that I'm going to read the work of half a dozen poets who died in the past decade. Adrian Rich, born 1929, died in 2012. Derek Walcott, born in 1930, died in 2017. Lucille Clifton, born in 1936, died in 2010. Wanda Coleman, born in 1946, died in 2013. Janice Gould, born in 1949, died in 2019. And Tony Hoagland, born in 1953, died 2018. I'm going to read them in order of their birth years as an historical progression. So this is KBOO, Portland Community Radio, folks. If you've just tuned in, missed the first moment or two, you can catch it later. This is KBOO's Fall Pledge Drive. It's on until the 28th of this month. So you can go to the website, kboo.fm, and pledge some cash to keep the good stuff, the music, the talking, the thinking, even some laughter every now and then in these times will keep coming. 
All right, so I'm beginning, as I said, with um, a piece by Adrian Rich. And here it is. It's called Dedications. I know you are reading this poem late, before leaving your office of the one intense yellow lamp spot and the darkening window in the lassitude of a building faded to quiet long after rush hour. I know you are reading this poem standing up in a bookstore far from the ocean on a gray day of early spring, faint flakes driven across the plain's enormous spaces around you. I know you are reading this poem in a room where too much has happened for you to bear, where the bedclothes lie in stagnant coils on the bed, and the open valise speaks of flight, but you cannot leave yet. I know you are reading this poem as the underground train loses momentum, and before running up the stairs toward a new kind of love your life has never allowed. I know you are reading this poem by the light of the television screen where soundless images jerk and slide while you wait for the newscast from the Intifada. I know you are reading this poem in a waiting room of eyes met and unmeeting, of identity with strangers. I know you are reading this poem by fluorescent light in the boredom and fatigue of the young who are counted out, count themselves out, at too early an age. I know you are reading this poem through your failing sight, the thick lens enlarging these letters beyond all meaning, yet you read on because even the alphabet is precious. I know you are reading this poem as you pace beside the stove, warming milk, a crying child on your shoulder, a book in your hand because life is short and you, too, are thirsty. I know you are reading this poem, which is not in your language, guessing at some words while others keep you reading, and I want to know which words they are. I know you are reading this poem, listening for something, torn between bitterness and hope, turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. I know you are reading this poem because there is nothing else left to read there where you have landed, stripped as you are. She wrote that poem between 1990 and 1991, or over that nearly two-year period. And one of the things that struck me as I was collecting the set for tonight's show is how often, um, as I was reading, and now as you are listening, you'll note the same, I'm sure, um, the allusions made by the poets, the remarks made by the poets are appropriate <laughs> in any given moment, sometimes right now, though they wrote them 10 years, 20 years, however long ago. Moving now to Derek Walcott. I have three relatively short pieces. Perhaps he's known better for his longer pieces, but these are three I really like, so these are the ones we're going to do. The Fist. The fist, clenched round my heart, loosens a little, and I gasp brightness, but it tightens again. When have I ever not loved the pain of love? But this has moved past love to mania. This has the strong clench of the madman. This is gripping the ledge of unreason before plunging, howling into the abyss. Hold heart, then, heart. This way, at least, you live. This next one by Derek Walcott is called Map of the New World. Walcott being a Caribbean poet, there's, of course, yet a different meaning for the concept of the New World than there might be if you, like me, um, are people who descended from folks who came here rather than folks who came up here. Map of the New World. At the end of this sentence, rain will begin. At the rain's edge, a sail. Slowly, the sail will lose sight of islands. Into a mist will go the belief in harbors of an entire race. The Ten Years' War is finished. Helen's hair, a gray cloud. 
Troy, a white ash pit by the drizzling sea. The drizzle tightens like the strings of a harp. A man with clouded eyes picks up the rain and plucks the first line of the Odyssey. And this third one by Derek Walcott is called Bleecker Street, Summer. Summer for prose and lemons, for nakedness and languor, for the eternal idleness of the imagined return, for rare flutes and bare feet, and the August bedroom of tangled sheets, and the Sunday salt, ah, violin. When I press summer dusks together, it is a month of street accordions and sprinklers laying the dust, small shadows running from me. It is music opening and closing, Italia mia, on bleaker, ciao, Antonio, and the water cries of children tearing the rose-colored sky in streams of paper. It is dusk in the nostrils and the smell of water down littered streets that lead you to no water and gathering islands and lemons in the mind. There is the Hudson, like the sea of flame. I would undress you in the summer heat and laugh and dry your damp flesh if you came. Three poems by Derek Walcott, no longer with us, except, of course, and here's where we get lucky, like the others I'll be reading tonight, in the poems. We have the poems. Now I'm moving to Lucille Clifton, and I'm going to read from a couple of her books. I have recently, maybe not today, I was pretty busy the last few days, too busy for my binge, but I've been binging on Lucille Clifton and Tony Hoagland. So I have a lot of their stuff. We'll see how much there is time for. I'm starting with a set from her book, Quilting, poems from 1987 to 1990. This one's called We Are Running. Running, and time is clocking us from the edge like an only daughter. Our mothers stream before us, cradling their breasts in their hands. Oh, pray that what we want is worth this running. Pray that what we're running toward is what we want. Good advice, don't you think? Sometimes you start running and then you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, why am I running? What's over there? This one's called Sleeping Beauty. When she woke up, she was terrible. Under his mouth, her mouth turned red and warm, then almost crimson as the coals smothered and forgotten in the grate. She had been gone so long. There was so much to unlearn. She opened her eyes. He was the first thing she saw, and she blamed him. I love that she did that at the end because it's not what we're expecting. He was the first thing she saw. And of course, what do we expect? Some romantic business, right? But no, not Lucille Clifton. Here's a pair, or I'm putting them together as a pair of poems. This one, the first one uh, of the set that I've created is Poem in Praise of Menstruation. If there is a river more beautiful than this, bright as the blood-red edge of the moon... If there is a river more faithful than this, returning each month to the same delta, if there is a river braver than this, coming and coming in a surge of passion, of pain, if there is a river more ancient than this, daughter of Eve, mother of Cain and of Abel, if there is in the universe such a river, if there is somewhere water more powerful than this wild water, pray that it flows also through animals beautiful and faithful and ancient and female and brave. At another point, she wrote, To my last period. I guess we can call this an ode. To my last period. Well, girl, goodbye. Goodbye. After 38 years, 
38 years and you never arrived, splendid in your red dress, without trouble for me, somewhere, somehow. Now it is done, and I feel just like the grandmothers who, after the hussy has gone, sit holding her photograph and sighing, wasn't she beautiful? Wasn't she beautiful? <laughs> oh, I love it. All right, more Lucy, more, more Lucille Clifton. This she wrote for a person named Michael Glazer, and it's called Ways You Are Not Like Oedipus. You have spared your father. You pass the Sphinx without answering. You recognized your mother in time. Your sons covet only their own kingdoms. You lead your daughters even in your blindness. You do not wander far from your own good house. It is home, and you know it. Whoever that guy is, he must be pretty okay, if that's what Lucille says about him. This poem is called The Last Day. We will find ourselves surrounded by our kind, all of them now wearing the eyes they had only imagined possible, and they will reproach us with those eyes in a language more actual than speech, asking we, why we allowed this to happen, asking why, for the love of God, we did this to ourselves. And we will answer in our feeble voices, because 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 that's one of the ones that i thought she wrote this you know years ago and yet it is very much of our moment here's one i'm continuing for those of you who are tuning in late we accept you even though you're tardy I'm reading Lucille Clifton now as one of the half dozen poems of the evening. This one's called Water Sign Woman. The woman who feels everything sits in her new house, waiting for someone to come who knows how to carry water without spilling, who knows why the desert is sprinkled with salt, why tomorrow is such a long and ominous word. They say to the feel-things woman that little she dreams is possible, that there is only so much joy to go around, only so much water. There are no questions for this, no arguments. She has to forget to remember the edge of the sea, they say, to forget how to swim to the edge. She has to forget how to feel. The woman who feels everything sits in her new house retaining the secret the desert knew when it walked up from the ocean. The desert, so beautiful in her eyes. Water will come again if you can wait for it. She feels what the desert feels. She waits. I know there are deserts all over the planet, but when I read that poem, I always think about New Mexico and Arizona. I think about the deserts that I have had the good fortune to visit, to walk in, and not in fear or in danger. Here's one about being a poet. Naturally, I was drawn to this, although, frankly, I could read the whole book. This one's called After the Reading. Tired from being a poet, I throw myself onto Howard Johnson's bed and long for home that sad, mysterious country where nobody notices a word I say. Nobody thinks more of me or less than they would think of any chattering thing. Mice running toward the dark, leaves rubbing against one another, words tumbling together up the long stair. Home, my own cheap lamp I can switch off, pretending I'm at peace there in the dark. Home, I sink at last into the poet's short and fitful sleep. I actually didn't have the one that one in the original set I had chosen for this show, but I added it just yesterday because I did a gig yesterday, which was quite a treat. I loved doing it, but at the end, I was empty. Luckily, um, I did get to go to my own home as opposed to a room at Howard Johnson's. This one's called Moonchild. This is the last one that I'll be reading from the book Quilting. Moonchild. 
Only after the death of the man who killed the bear, after the death of the coal miner's son, did I remember that the moon also rises, coming heavy or thin over the living fields, over the cities of the dead. Only then did I remember how she catches the sun and keeps most of him for the evening that surely will come, and it comes. Only then did I know that to live in the world all that I needed was some small light, and know that indeed I would rise again and rise again to dance. And now some more, Lucy, more, even more, more. Um, I'll be my own audience. More, more, more poems by Lucille Clifton. Um, these from her collection, The Terrible Stories. I originally um, stacked up all of her books to bring in. I thought, get a grip here, get a grip. So I only brought these two, um, these two collections. This one, this poem from The Terrible Stories is called Telling Our Stories. The fox came every evening to my door, asking for nothing. My fear trapped me inside, hoping to dismiss her, but she sat till morning, waiting. At dawn we would, each of us, rise from our haunches, look through the glass, then walk away. Did she gather her village around her and sing of the hairless moon face, the trembling snout, the ignorant eyes? Child, I tell you now, it was not the animal blood I was hiding from. It was the poet in her, the poet and the terrible stories she could tell. I suppose I should call that the title poem and the terrible stories she could tell. This one's called 1994. I was leaving my 58th year when a thumb of ice stamped itself hard near my heart. You have your own story. You know about the fear, the tears, the scar of disbelief. You know that the saddest lies are the ones we tell ourselves. You know how dangerous it is to be born with breasts. You know how dangerous it is to wear dark skin. I was leaving my 58th year when I woke into the winter of a cold and mortal body, thin icicles hanging off the one mad nipple weeping. Have we not been good children? Did we not inherit the earth? But you must know all about this from your own shivering life. And the last, or as far as I know, um, I have so many poems, it's hard for me to believe I'm going to need more, but if I run out, we'll come back. Um, this is the last one of, uh, from this book by Lucille Clifton. The Mississippi River empties into the Gulf, and the Gulf enters the sea, and so forth, none of them emptying anything, all of them carrying yesterday, forever, on their white tipped backs, all of them dragging toward tomorrow. It is the great circulation of the earth's body, like the blood of the gods, this river in which the past is always flowing. Every water is the same water coming round. Every day someone is standing on the edge of this river, staring into time, whispering mistakenly, mistakenly, only here, only now. Think about that. The first time I read this poem, I read the, the last three lines over and over again, staring into time, whispering, and here's the key word, mistakenly, only here, only now. She was a wise woman, Lucille Clifton. And here's the first Wanda Coleman poem. Fear drives you to tears and out of the house during arguments with Mama for long walks on sweltering summer eves. The moths come, collect on grainy stucco porches, are hosed away at sunrise. You stare at shaded windows, struggle to decipher the lives inside. Who are they? Do they see you out here watching? Won't some sympathetic someone invite you in for tea? Cars are being washed and turtle waxed, 
by loving hands. Preteeners play dodgeball on vacant lots. The librarian admonishes you for staying so late and not having brought your card. Palms nod against the rainbow neon sky. The moths come and the starlings and the dragonflies. You know something important is going to happen to you. Hurry, you whisper. Please, hurry. Important. The voice in that poem is so sure that the important something should hurry along. I'm so, what should I call myself, of two or more, or more, even more multiple minds that I think, hmm, maybe that important something isn't necessarily a delicious something, but not Wanda Coleman, and it's her poem, so she knows. Here's the next. They kicked you out of after-school charm class. No boy will call you for a date, and you will never attend a prom. You don't need the stars to tell you that your bones are too big, that you don't have a shape, that your eyes buck when you get excited, that your lips are not the kissing kind. Only the popular girls get to go to Casablanca to languish over backlot roulette wheels. Only the girls with amber eyes sit with the swells at Rick's. Nevertheless, You'll find a way to lose that other virginity one bleak night in a south-central motel room. And on the way, you too will have your Sam, if not quite like in the movie. No piano player. He'll simply adjust the dial on the dashboard of his 62 Chevy to bring in the hottest rhythm and blues radio station in town. And you, and that Georgia Reb romancing you, will thank him for the song. Inside the glove compartment, you'll find those illicit letters of transit admitting you into adulthood, alongside Sam's round-trip ticket to Nam. She can give you a little whiplash there, going from one place to another in your emotions, in your mind. Here's one called Chapter 2 of the Story. The assistant librarian was an old white woman with waddles hanging to her brittle neck. A child of ten, I didn't think of them as characteristics of aging, only traits peculiar to her. I couldn't help staring because I'd never noticed them on any person before, not that close up. I was also amazed by her pinched magenta mouth and tweezed then penciled in brown eyebrows and how her bifocals magnified the bigotry in her eyes as well as those dark amber lashes. Her gray eyes policed me through the stacks like Dobermans. She watched me come and go, take books and bring books. She monitored the titles and after a while decided she'd misjudged her little colored girl and for a time she tried to apologize in her way, to engage in small talk. I never answered back. Once she set special books aside to gain my trust, respect, smile. I left them untouched, hating her more for that. Justice, spoken of in the tenth year. Here's a poem called Fast Eddie. More Wanda Coleman. Fast Eddie. Hair shaved to the scalp like po' boys do. Those bourgeois kids made fun of his face. Marked those crude scars would appear overnight. Graphemes of violent strokes like tribal initiation. Ascara straggling his cheek, jaw, or noggin. Tracks from rites of passage via paternal rage. A drunk and reeking darkness hemmed in by a whiteness never to be overcome. We made a junior gang of ourselves, Eddie's main squeeze, his best buddy Red and me, hanging tough in our spot between the bungalows and the music building, necking the robins blue out of that afternoon sky, holding hands so tightly it registered in our groins. While the lucky caught their beauty winks, Eddie rose before the sun and went breakfastless into a cold morning, tossed newspapers up on porches where another world enjoyed Joe full tass or fresh orange squoze juice with eggs 
bacon, toast. Eddie working that Schwinn, riding Bronco, busting the air, bringing all he earned home to help defray the cost of barely living. Before he was branded delinquent and expelled for shooting craps. Dear Eddie, how's the world treating you? Did you survive long enough to survive Nam? Would they have wanted you anyway, seeing how you were so short in height and temper? I think about us lots these days, especially when some fool says the word happy. Signed, Ever and Always, Red's Girl. Continuing through Wanda Coleman's collection, Bathwater Wine. This one's called Flight of the California Condor 2. Maybe I should have read one, but but I didn't. So we'll move ahead here, folks. Flight of the California Condor 2. Mass migration began in the 50s. We observed their withdrawal and kept note. We lived in their midst, the ones in the house on our left, a strange pair. They always crossed their yard on tiptoe. As children, my brother and I watched them through the thick barrier of morning glory vines and peach trees. The female always wore an expression of dread and kept peeking over her shoulders in our direction. The male seemed less afraid, but nevertheless cautious. One time they saw us watching and stood stark still, frozen in the light of our amazed inquiry. In 1956, they were all over the elementary school grounds, but within two years, they were all going, and by 1958, when I graduated, most were gone. I didn't miss them, but wondered where they had gotten to, and why. When we traveled north, south, west, or east, away from our home, we saw that there were plenty of them, and even as the face of our neighborhood blackened, there were still two nests of them, stubbornly resistant, but these were elderly survivors and eventually died out. By 1961 it was apparent something was amiss. I was in junior high school. Again, they were everywhere. I claimed two in friendship, but one spring there were rumors, and the yellow buses came, and they all got on, including my two friends, and went off to visit the new school, and when they returned, they told me they were moving onward after the summer we'd be friends no more. By 1964, they had all gone from the throbbing black heart of the city. There were a few unable to flee due to some circumstance of age or economy, and by this time we were no longer concerned with their leaving, for the swallows were returning from Mexico. After the revolt of August 1965, they were rarer still. Only a few stubborn species remained. The blue-coated throat chucker, the red-fisted money grubber, the purple-livered land snatcher, the green-beaked dope dabbler, and the magenta-throated street strutter. It is claimed by some that one day they will all virtually disappear, and by others that this carnivorous bird of prey will persist not only in our destruction, but in its own. In these times of much discussion of gentrification, I thought, <laughs> once again, <laughs> she wrote this a quite a while ago because this ain't news, people. <laughs> this ain't news. Okay, here's another the penultimate Wanda Coleman poem for this evening. This one's called Sidewalk Shakes. S-H-E-I-K-S, as in Sheik's Shakes. Hollywood, 1981. Backgammon afternoons. Coffee stronger than Samson and sweeter than Delilah. Sullen Mediterranean and oblique. The neighbor men stare at my comings and goings, measure my metal, my night-colored skin, its spark and flame with steady, kingly eyes, watch my children and observe my men. Displaced potentates, they occupy the stoops for hours, as if thrones, accepting the ministrations of potato-fleshed, wheat-eyed wives, smelling of saffron, 
nutmeg and paprika, women with veiled minds and veiled tongues, bejeweled daughters and arrogant half-American sons. I feel their wonderings at the veranda window. They watch me work, piqued by the constant clicking of that typewriter to that music played too loud. What kind of democracy creates whoever you are? They never speak except to offer something for sale or, please miss, can you move your car? So again, the neighborhood changes. And this is the last one for this portion, the last one of Wanda Coleman's poems. It's called Clown Meditation. I am unsure. I go about the endless dream of grave faces. Who are we? What neighborhood is this? Why am I lost here? Is this the intersection of last night's dream and this morning's reality? Sister, where are we? This face is not our mother's face. Whose voice is that? I am uncertain. Do I have time to know him? There's a big black bear, but no You're cave, listening no park, and no half-eaten hikers. Does God know where I am and why I'm lost? Is he too an uncertainty? My voice is so tiny. If I put my nose under the blade, will someone slice it off? Can there be space without boundaries? One of the reasons I chose this poem is that I do not understand it. The next poet um, for this set is Janice Gould. And um, I recently uh, joined a group of people who gathered here in Portland to commemorate Janice's life and work, actually just a week or two ago. And so, of course, when I was thinking about recent deaths, she literally died in this year, um, I thought, of course, Janice, I want Janice in this set. So I've chosen um, some poems by her, th uh, two shorts and a long. The first one is called Tribal History. When I think of my mother's hands, brown and square, fingers slightly bent from years of work, I consider all the other hands of Kankaumeju folk, bound, prepared for the lynching at the crooked oak along the mountain road near the town of Cherokee. It stood not far from the meadows where our ancestral people made their home. This was in the time when white men scoured those hills, breaking them down into rubble in a crazy search for gold. The treaty with the Kankau would not be ratified by Congress, for Indians were in the way of progress, and though a promise had been made, to provide cornstarch and other commodities to every man who made his X on that scrap of parchment. The only X the white men made was to cross the hands of Indians behind their backs before swinging them out over the lava walls of the canyon. This one, quite a different mood, is called Lavanda que te quiero lavanda. Um, with a note after Federico Garcia Lorca. Lavender, how I love you, lavender. Violet eyes, indigo lashes, mountains at dawn, rivers at sunset. Lavender, how I want you, lavender. Scent of lilac on your neck, floral hint of wine we sip. Your flashes of wit, sweet, dark, tender, like shadows on snow, like broken branches. Beguiling like a girl, your body a meadow where daylight lingers into long hours and twilight is somber, quiet, and pensive as stars appear slowly in a deep purple sky. Ausencias y nostalgia, la triste musica del tango, fog in November on the streets of San Francisco, smell of baked bread and black coffee, taste of pastilles, lavender stones, and penumbra, your beautiful mouth in a bruising month of winter. 
one of the things I was thinking about when I put this set together, one of the many things, as you've already gathered, that I was thinking about when I put this set together was that I wanted um, poems that were not all of a, a kind, all of a theme. Many of us who write poems, as well as stories, plays, movie scripts, et cetera, et cetera, um, we are known for this kind or that kind, this mood or that mood, this theme or that theme. Uh, but of course, virtually everyone does more than one thing. And I wanted to try to represent at least a few of those things for the folks I had chosen. And certainly in, in this case, as you can see already with the first two, and now you will hear um, with the third, um, I've done that with Janice. This poem is called Discontent. We could hear her knocking down strands of cobweb from ceilings, sticky filaments, sacks of eggs, as we woke most mornings to a worm of discontent. It lodged beneath the heart, rubbed our frayed nerves, gnawed at the gut, spleen, ovaries. Filth was mom's first enemy, so each day began with ritual cleaning the stab and sweep of the broom down the dark hall over the stained and scratched oak floors. For weeks she held her dust mop one-handed and with the other cupped a hernia, and while she swore at us kids in that hard voice, a litany of our sins and failures, sloth, stupidity, secrecy, we watched her smash the spiders that ran herky-jerky along the baseboards while we ran too. Glaring at each other, we gathered up the scattered laundry, our father's shoes, his newspapers and tools, our books, drawings, music, sweatshirts and jackets, whatever we left lying around. We were guilty, but good at evasion. We cultivated shrewish or obsessive behaviors of our own. My tough older sister sneered and stalked out of the house to meet her boyfriend. My sweet younger sister trembled and cried, comforted by one of our many dogs. I slammed doors, pounded them with my fists, screamed, Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! She couldn't leave us alone. She loved us too much. Though we were quick, she was quicker. Her words stung. We must have deserved it. And now I'm moving to the sixth of our six poets who have died in this past decade, Tony Hoagland. And I pulled some from a fairly early collection. Let's see. Donkey Gospel. When did he publish this one? 1998. Right up to um, literally the last year or two. And because one of the things I'm always thinking of when I think about chronology, did they change their style? Did they change their interest? Can we find something? And of course, no matter how good they were to begin with, did they get better? What does that mean anyway? So let's see. So this is Tony Hoagland from what is now long ago and far away, the late 1990s. This is called Mistaken Identity. Also, when I was putting this set together, I found themes and threads I had no desire to find. It's not like I was against them. They just didn't occur to me. Um, so, and, and this poem, of course, makes me think that, having read the ones I've already read. This one's called Mistaken Identity, Tony Hoagland. I thought I saw my mother in the lesbian bar with a salt gray crew cut, a nose stud, and a tattoo of a parrot on her arm. She was sitting at a corner table, leaning forward to ignite, on someone's match, one of those low-tar things she used to smoke, and she looked happy to be alive again after her long marriage to other people's needs, her twenty-year stint as Sisyphus, struggling to push a blue Ford station wagon full of screaming kids up a mountainside of groceries. My friend Deborah had brought me there to educate me on the issue of my own unnecessariness, and I stood against the wall, trying to look simultaneously nonviolent and nonchalant, watching couples slow dance in the female dark, but feeling speechless, really as the first horse to meet the first horseless carriage on a cobbled street. 
That's when I noticed Mom, whispering into the delicate seashell ear of a brunette, running a fingertip along the shoreline of a tank top, as if death had taught her finally not to question what she wanted and not to hesitate in reaching out and taking it. I want to figure out everything right now before I die, but I admit that in the dark, where a whole life can be mistaken, in the dark cavern of that bar, it took me one, maybe two, big minutes to find my footing and to aim my antiquated glance over the shoulder of that woman pretending not to be my mother as if I were looking for someone else. I just thought, whoa, you thought up that whole fantasy, you clever fellow. This one is called Brave World. But what about the courage of the cancer cell that breaks out from the crowd it has belonged to all its life, like a housewife erupting from her line at the grocery store because she just can't stand the sameness anymore? What about the virus that travels in town, excuse me, that arrives in town like a traveler from somewhere far away with suitcases in hand who only wants a place to stay, a chance to get ahead in the land of opportunity, but who smells bad, talks funny, and reproduces fast? What about the microbe that hurls its tiny boat straight into the rushing metabolic tide, no less cunning and intrepid than Odysseus, that gambles all to found a city or an unknown shore? What about their bill of rights, their access to a full-scale first-class destiny, their chance to realize maximum potential, which, sure, will come at the expense of someone else, Someone who, from a certain point of view, is a secondary character, whose weeping is almost too far off to hear. A noise among the noises coming from the shadows of any brave new world. And this, of course, this poem from a man who died um, quite painfully of cancer. Moving from mothers to fathers, here's a poem called Benevolence. When my father dies and comes back as a dog, I already know what his favorite sound will be. The soft, almost inaudible gasp as the rubber lips of the refrigerator door unstick, followed by that arctic exhalation of cold air. Then the cracking of the ice cube tray above the sink and the quiet ching the cubes make when dropped into a glass. Unable to pronounce the name of his favorite drink or to express his preference for single malt, he will utter one sharp bark and point the wet black arrow of his nose imperatively up at the bottle on the shelf. Then seat himself before me, trembling, expectant, water pouring down the long pink dangle of his tongue as the memory of pleasure from his former life shakes him like a tail. What I'll remember as I tower over him, holding a dripping, whiskey-flavored cube above his open mouth, relishing the power rushing through my veins the way it rushed through his, what I'll remember as I stand there is the hundred clever tricks I taught myself to please him, and for how long I mistakenly believed that it was love he held concealed in his closed hand. Tony Hoagland talking about his parents in his poems. Here's another Hoagland collection. This one's called Application for Release from the Dream. This one's called Ode to the Republic. It's going to be great when America is just a second fiddle and we stand on the sidelines and watch the big boys slug it out. Old men reading the Times on benches in Central Park will smile and say, ah, let France take care of it. Farmers in South Carolina will have bumper stickers that read, One Nation with Vegetables for All, and USA, Numero Uno for Triple A Tomatoes. America, you big scary baby, didn't you know when you pounded your chest like that in public it just embarrassed us? When you lied to yourself on television, we looked down at our feet. When your left hand turned into a claw, 
when you hammered the little country down and sang the Pledge of Allegiance, I put on my new sunglasses and stared at the church across the street. I thought I had to go down with you, hating myself in red, white, and blue, learning to say, I'm sorry, in more and more foreign languages. But now, at last, the end of our dynasty has arrived, and I feel humble and calm and curiously free. It's so good to be unimportant. It's nice to sit on the shore of the Potomac and watch time take back half of everything. It's a relief to take the dog for a walk without frightening the neighbors. My country, tis of thee I sing. There are worse things than being second burrito. Minor player, ex-big shot, former VIP, drinking decaf in the nursing home for downsized superpowers. Like a Navajo wearing a cowboy hat, may you learn to handle history with irony. May you gaze into the looking glass and see your doubleness, old blue eyes in a surprised brown face. May your women finally lay down the law. No more war on a school night. May your shame be cushioned by the oldest chemotherapy, stage after stage of acceptance. May someone learn to love you again. May you sit on the porch with the other countries in the late afternoon and talk about chickens and rain. Oh, may it be so. May it be so. She said longingly, Hopefully. Here's another Tony Hoagland poem um, from this, uh, the second book I've chosen, Application for Release from the Dream. This one's called Proportion. The attorney collects a fee of $7 million for getting $18 million back from the widow of the CEO whose corporation stole $3 billion from 10,000 stockholders and employees. She has to go down to one Mercedes and take driving lessons. The radio said, expect delays, but 5,000 years for justice still seems ridiculous. What I heard from behind me at the baseball game, we can't see anything from here. It seemed so true of us. The two young actresses flip a coin to see who will get to play the cancer patient because they know the worst fate makes the best role, and that dying can be good for your career. One of them will go to Hollywood and be a star. The other will move to Cincinnati and take photos of her twins running back and forth through the sprinkler in shorts, soaking wet, shrieking with delight. I love that image, those kids. Were you a sprinkler runner, lis radio listener? I was a sprinkler runner, long ago and far away. <laughs> Here's one called The Hero's Journey, still with Tony Hoagland. I remember the first time I looked at the spotless marble floor of a giant hotel lobby and understood that someone had waxed and polished it all night and that someone else had pushed his cart of cleaning supplies down the long air-conditioned corridors of the Steinberg building across the street and emptied all 243 waste baskets, stopping now and then to scrape up chewing gum with a special flat-bladed tool he keeps in his back pocket. It tempered my enthusiasm for The Collected Letters of Henry James, Volume 2, and for Joseph Campbell's Journey of the Hero, Chapter 5, the test in which he describes how the tall and fair-complexioned knight Gawain, or Gawain, as he is sometimes called, makes camp one night beside a cemetery but cannot sleep for all the voices rising up from down below. Let him stay out there a hundred nights with his thin blanket and his cold armor and his useless sword until he understands exactly how the glory of the protagonist is always paid for by a lot of minor characters. In the morning, he will wake and gallop back to safety. He will hear his name embroidered into toasts and songs. But now he knows there is a country he had not accounted for, and that country has its citizens. The one-armed baker sweeping out his shop at 4 a.m., the prisoner sweating in his narrow cell, and that woman in the nursing home who has worked there for a thousand years, taking away the bedpans 
lifting up and wiping off the soft, heroic buttocks of Odysseus. I thought, oh, Tony Hoagland, I'm so glad you thought of writing that. This is one of my favorite Tony Hoagland poems, and it is also from the collection application for release from the dream. It's called Coming and Going. My marriage ended in an airport parking lot so long ago. I was not wise enough to cry while looking for my car, walking through the underground garage. Jets were roaring overhead, and if I had been wise, I would have looked up at those heavy-bellied cylinders and seen the wheelchairs and the frightened dogs inside, the kidneys bedded in dry ice and styrofoam containers. I would have known that in synagogues and churches all over town, couples were gathering like flocks of geese, getting ready to take off, while here the jets were putting down their gear, getting ready for the jolt, the giant tires shrieking and scraping off two long streaks of rubber molecules. That might have been my wife and I, screaming in our fear. It is a matter of amusement to me now, me staggering around that underground garage, trying to remember the color of my vehicle, unable to remember that I had come by cab, eventually gathering myself and going back inside, quite matter-of-fact, to collect the luggage I would be carrying for the rest of my life. First time I read that poem, I thought, well, now there's a brilliant last line. I mean, well done all through. Um, here's a poem from his book, Recent Changes in the Vernacular. It's called Meadow. The butterfly is solar-powered. It floats around the clearing where the light is strong. When it comes to the perimeter of shade, it turns and glides back into the clearing. It doesn't use more energy than it requires, and we have never seen a butterfly that kept on growing bigger and bigger from the size of an aspen leaf to a dinner plate. No one ever noticed an insatiable butterfly bulldozing down the acres of a field to build a new summer home or a butterfly superstore where the butterfly would sell imported pollen to other butterflies at inflated prices. I think you can see where I'm going with this. I'm not going to drive the point like a nail into your head or take out an ad in the newspaper with your name on it telling you to turn off the lights when you leave home or to donate all your money to the Foundation for Giraffes. A poem also should be solar-powered and should turn back at the edge of casting blame. It should land on the edge of a tablecloth and then unfold its wings as light as a suggestion. That's Meadow from the collection called Recent Changes in the Vernacular. Now I have one more Hoagland poem and also a Hoagland um, set, which, set piece, what shall I call it? It's actually just a title um, of a poem that I haven't time to read, but the title, my my stalwart pal here in the studio, Patrick, has suggested, and he's so right, that I include this. Here's a poem called cause of death fox news it's too long for me to read folks you're just going to have to get this book which is priest turned therapist treats fear of god okay here's the last one dinner guest the dinner guest goes upstairs to use the ladies room and after she has washed her hands just out of curiosity takes a peek in the medicine cabinet where among the NyQuil and Ativan and dental floss, she sees a bottle labeled Male Enhancement Formula and is puzzled for a moment and then amused. Is this the funny little thing, she wonders, that has caused so many wars, so many murders and exploded buildings, so many smashed down doors and refugees? And in a way, of course, she is correct. The need to engineer an outcome the desire to feel confident that what you want to happen will happen when you want. Downstairs, reseated in her chair, the guest picks up her knife and fork, but now her appetite is gone. Outside, it's dark. Inside, the candles lick their yellow tongues, and at the table, the final course of big ideas is being served. The men are saying that injustice can be eliminated. 
That's Tony Hoagland. And there you have it, folks. That's tonight's show of Poetry and Everything. Next month's Poetry and Everything will be on October 28th. Remember, between now and then and always, support your local independent bookstores, independent reading series, and independent radio. And this is KBOO Portland. It's uh, 10.58 p.m. Coming up is the Holy Crowley Hour. Uh, But first, these words. KBU Community Radio is hiring a full-time volunteer coordinator. We're excited to find someone to manage KBU's volunteer program and be responsible for the day-to-day coordination of volunteers as well as their training. For a full job description and instructions for applying, go to kboo.fm slash volunteer hire 2019. KBU is an equal opportunity and affirmative action employer. Women and people of color are encouraged to apply. Again, for more information, go to kboo.fm slash volunteer hire 2019. KBU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Flamenco Syndrome on Friday, September 27th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater in Portland. Flamenco Syndrome is a documentary film focusing on international flamenco, which reflects on how to sing and dance to the songs of others and in the process reveal one's essence. Again, that's Flamenco Syndrome on Friday, September 27th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of That's No Lady, That's Darcel, produced by Triangle Productions. The play runs from September 19th through October 5th at Portland State University's Lincoln Performance Hall in Portland. Walter Cole owned the first Portland coffee bar, then bought an old beer and wine tavern. He began a drag act that, in 1974, became Darcel 15. This musical tells the life story of Walter, Darcel, and more. Again, that's Triangle Productions, that's No Lady, that's Darcel. From September 19th through October 5th at Portland State University's Lincoln Performance Hall. Located at 1620 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. 